0: Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday, a fee. On Sunday, a king. Late down. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Many of you know, and some of you might not, but many of you know that the Bible, when it wants to get a point across, Um, It it says things repeatedly three times, like three times in a row. Uh, That's something the Bible does. So when the angels in Isaiah say that God is holy, 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 right? Um, They're saying that he is the maximum amount of holy that someone is possible to be, right? That's the, the sort of most holy that can happen. Holy, holy, holy. And in the same way, you know, Peter denies Jesus how many times? He denies him three times which is a way of the Bible emphasizing not just that Jesus sort of called that at the Last Supper, but that Peter really was denying him as much as one could deny being his disciple. But then what does Jesus do? He comes back after his resurrection and forgives him how many times? Three times, right? He sort of blesses him and and meets him in his forgiveness to say that Peter is maximally forgiven. Um, This pattern of three is super important because I'm going to talk to you about one that we have today, Uh, as a part of our sermon series we've been going through for the past uh, couple of weeks here, which is the life after the Exodus. What happens to God's people after they're saved from Egypt. Um, And how in all the movies, right, you know, what ends up happening is they cross the Red Sea, and they get the Ten Commandments, and they fade to black, and it's sort of like a happy ending. But the reality is it's more complicated than that. And so our sermon series is going through what it's like. What do we learn about people? What do we learn about God on the other side of the sea? Um, What do we learn about uh, life? And so that's where we're headed. And uh, when the Bible says something three times, it's like this big neon sign in scripture that says, hey, everybody, look at this. This is important. Keep your eyes because it's happening again. It's not a coincidence anymore. It's a pattern. And so today in our reading, we have number three of a three-part back-to-back series of Bible stories from the, from the book of Exodus, um, telling us something very important about human nature and telling us something very important about God. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. So let's dive into our reading from the book of Exodus. All the congregation of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord and camped at Rephidim. But there was no place, there was no water for the people of drink. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses saying, give us water to drink. So we're going back to this theme that we've seen for the past two weeks. In Exodus chapter 15, Israel needs water and they come upon water. The water is bitter. It's undrinkable. It's either contaminated or gross, undrinkable, whatever way you want to phrase it. And they start to grumble and say, Moses, come on here, guy. Like we don't have a whole lot of water on hand. This is the desert and we can't drink this water. We're going to die of thirst. And so you'll remember that God explains to Moses if he throws a particular log into this um, uh, uh, sort of spring of bitter water, it will turn sweet. And that's what he does, right? So that's instance number one. And instance number two, last week we talked about this, the problem of food. And the people are wandering through, um, again, this desert area. They don't have a lot of food on hand. And so they say, um, very similarly to this, did you just bring us out in the desert to die, Moses? Because we're hungry, and our children are hungry, and our, our you know, we're, we're, it was much better back in Egypt where we were slaves, but at least we had food, we ate meat. And, of course, Moses prays about it, and God provides not just regular daily bread through manna, but he provides quail as well. He, he gives them, you know, chicken for dinner, <laughs> as it were. And so that's pattern number two, and today is number three, where now instead of having contaminated water they can't drink, now they're just out of water. And so they go to Moses again, even after God has done so much for them. This is the third time in a row, right? Chapters 15, 16, 17 of Exodus, three stories of wandering in the desert, three stories of trying to adjust to nomadic life of freedom, as opposed to an enslaved life back in Egypt. Three stories where the people of God turned to Moses. And of course, this time around, you read in the reading, they're about ready to stone the man uh, because they're worried they're going to die in the desert from no water. And so that is our three-part repetition. And it gets pretty rough, right? Like, what do people say this time? The people thirsted for water and grumbled against Moses and said, Why do you bring us out into Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Uh, livestock are, are pretty important in that time period. If you live a nomadic life in the desert, one of the ways you get regular food is through um, the, the, the livestock, not slaughtering them, but like dairy milk, you know? Um, that you can actually have, while you're wandering in the wilderness, milk and cheese and curds. You can get that if you have uh, cows or other livestock, oats, that sort of thing. And um, what they're saying here is it's not just us and our families, but like our actual sources of nutrition and wandering in the desert. Like, it's all going to dry up. Um, You can't have milk from your cows if your cows don't get water. Uh, Right? And so you have... um, This theme of just anxiety and fear, and it's manifesting as anger, and it's being transferred over to Moses. And this is the third time in a row we see it happening. And of course, for the third time in a row, God provides, right? The Lord said to Moses, "'Pass on before the people, taking with you the elders of Israel. "'Take uh, in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. "'Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, "'and you shall strike the rock.'" Water shall come out of it and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. I appreciate that one of the things Moses does and God sort of orchestrates, he brings the elders of the people with him to witness this. Uh, presumably, right? So they can go back to their families, they can go back to their tribes, they can go back to their people and say, You'll never guess what I just saw. <laughs> right, these, these wizened elder people in the community, they all come and they stand and Moses goes smack against the rock and water starts to flow out. And they're like, okay, well, now these guys can go back and help quell the anxiety that comes from the people. Because they know what God can do. They're going to see water come from a rock, right? You know the old expression, you can't squeeze water from a rock? Well, it's happening here, folks, and that's a divine miracle. And so they can go back to their people and say, hey, actually, you know what, like, I know this is really scary and I know this is anxious, but God's going to provide for us. He's done it so far. He's going to do it again. But still, this is three times in a row, right? One wonders if this is going to be all that effective in the sense that God is, is um, He's so generous. This is the same people who saw the plagues in Egypt. This is the same group of people who saw the parting of the Red Sea, right? No one else in the history of humanity has looked to their left and looked to their right and seen a giant wall of water, and yet they're still having trouble trusting God in the midst of their nomadic life. And so what is, what is the Bible trying to tell us by putting three stories like this in a row? right? Stories where people are anxious about whether God's going to provide. Stories where people are projecting that anger towards Moses, um, and, and also his family as well, uh, Aaron, Miriam. Like the whole family who's leading Israel. What is the Bible trying to tell us by putting these three stories together? And and the, from start to finish, I think what you can take away from this reading is that the Bible wants us to see um, the low anthropology of Scripture. Right. That's the name of the book uh, that we're bringing author David Zoll to speak about in November. Low anthropology. Right. And um, the, the premise of the book is this. Right. Uh, the author says. Everyone has an anthropology, and you're going to get, uh, you know, we're going to have copies of the book soon in the next week or two here, so you'll get to read this for yourself. But preview, Uh, (laughs) uh, everyone has an anthropology. Everyone has a set of core fundamental beliefs about human beings, what they value, what they're capable of doing, whether they're good or bad. Like every human being has this, and how we view our fellow humans dictates a lot about our actions and behaviors towards them and also ourself. So he says, everyone in that sense is an anthropologist. We all study human beings and come up with conclusions about how they should operate. So if you've ever said something like, well, you know, to err is human, right? Uh, That is an anthropology statement, right? Because you're saying human beings are people who err. To err is human. Or if you've ever got some frustrated at someone that you sort of stomped away in a huff and you said, you know what? Some people just don't change. Some people never change, right? That's an anthropology statement. You're saying something about the nature of humanity in that statement, not just about this person. Um, but you, you're saying people have a very tough time, or maybe it's impossible for people to change. Um, that's a statement about anthropology. Um, two people, here's an example. Um, this really happens when you... When you. Here's an example of how it happens often. Uh, you see someone who's... Um, Having a rough time, probably homeless, sitting on a curb with a little sign that says, Beg for, you know, they're begging for money. And some people walk by and they say, You know, this person clearly they're just looking for handouts, you know, they're looking for um, someone to to help fund this lifestyle, maybe even to go buy some illegal substances or, or to get drunk. So this person clearly, right? Um, I'm not going to give any money. And they they continue to walk, right? That's that's an anthropology statement. We're making a judgment about this stripe of humanity and what is going on in their hearts and minds. But another person may come forward and, and they can say, you know, oh, what a shame. You know, this person probably had a really tough, you know, childhood and maybe their father abused them. And, you know, man, all the social services must have let him down. And I just don't know that I can do anything to help because he's got so many things stacked against him. And then you just walk on by, right? That's another anthropology statement. You're making a judgment about this particular stripe of people and what they're doing. And even yet, like a third person, they come by and say, you know, this person's just down on their luck. If they just had, you know, a little extra money, maybe they could get some food in their system and get to the homeless shelter and get some help. And so they, they put $5 in the cup. Right? Those are all ways in which our anthropology, what we believe about humans and what they're capable of and, and whether they're good or bad and, and, and whether they're strong or not, right? those are all ways that we view the world and they dictate our actions and behaviors towards each other. And um, Dave Zoll talks in his book about what this low anthropology kind of looks like um, on the day-to-day level, some ways in which this manifests itself, right? Because um, the, the Bible is trying to point out to you that um, we should have a low anthropology when it comes to these three readings being back butted together. Um, we should take our view of what human beings are like and what they're capable of and maybe bring them down a notch. <laughs> um, we should be looking at this passage, the series of passages, and saying, man, um, these guys clearly aren't getting it. But the Bible is going to say, well, first off, you ain't seen nothing yet, because the whole Old Testament is a story of people not getting it, and a big chunk of the New Testament as well is about people not getting it. Um, but the Bible wants us to, to sort of lower our expectations about what human beings are capable of. They want us to lower our expectation, ex- expectations of perfection in ourselves, and it wants us to lower our expectations of perfection in others. In doing so, says author David Saul he says... Um, We're actually going to see some other things blossom, some other fruits blossom, things like uh, compassion and mercy and grace and understanding. That's what's going to blossom from an appropriately low anthropology, but I don't want to spoil the whole book for you. But in our reading, I think I'm going to talk a little bit more about Dave Zoll's understanding of what low anthropology looks like and what we see in our reading and sort of give you why I think this is a passage which asks us to lower our anthropology. And um, David Zoll says that there are three key things that can really define a low anthropology. He talks about limits, he talks about doubleness, and he talks about self-centeredness. Those are kind of the three pillars that if we explore those three themes uh, in our lives and the lives of others and even in scripture, um, we're gonna have a much more accurate view of human beings. So David Zoll talks uh, about limitation, right? Limitation is a key to low anthropology. Um, He says, look, there are just some limits human beings are not going to be able to transcend. Um, There are some limits of what we are indeed capable of. And here in the desert, wandering, you see the people of Israel bumping into their own limitation, right? They can't go three days without water. They can't go seven days without food. Their bodies are shutting down, right? You ever heard the phrase uh, uh, hangry, right? you know, hungry and angry together, right? They're getting hangry in the desert, right? Their their ability to control their emotional state seems to be dictated by the fact that they haven't eaten in like a couple of days. And so you can see the people of Israel as they wander in in this season of nomadic life, they're really struggling because they're bumping up against the limits of their biology, the limits of their sort of charity, the limits of their understanding, they're lashing out in anger, um, and, and they're doing so even though they have this long history of God's provision. So one way we see low anthropology at play in our reading is, is by limitation. The second thing we see is what David Zal would call doubleness. Uh, doubleness is what you and I might call the Romans 7 problem. Uh, doubleness is when you know the right thing to do, and then you don't do it. <laughs> right? You know you shouldn't have um, Oreos at midnight, Um, And I'm not speaking from personal experience at all. Um, But you know you shouldn't have Oreos at midnight, but you you eat the Oreos at midnight. You know you should go to bed, but you watch the next thing in Netflix. You know that if you tell your adult children how to raise their kids, they're only going to respond with resentment and anger. But you do it anyway, right? Um, Like These are all ways in which um, we know the right thing to do, but put us in the situation and we default to the thing we shouldn't do. And um, David Zal says, doubleness is a big part. And, and, and again, you see this happening with Israel, right? They have this long list of things. where, like, they know God can tr- they can trust God. They've walked through the water walls. They've seen God's provision. And yet, and yet, they still have trouble trusting. They know they should trust God. They've had the experience happen, but they are taking it out on Moses instead. So doubleness is at work in our reading. And finally, the, the third one between besides doubleness and limitation is uh, self-centeredness. Um, this is what um, Martin Luther described uh, as being incurvatus in se in the Latin, bent in on himself. And Luther talked about how um, human beings are like steel I-beams that you use for constructions. Well, he didn't expressly use steel I-beams because we didn't have steel or I-beams yet, but you get what I'm saying. And um, Martin Luther said, "You're like a steel I-beam, but you've been bent inward on yourself." And the problem is, is when you're bent inward like that, towards focusing on your own needs, your own wants, your own life, um, you cease to be useful for anything. You don't build skyscrapers with bent steel. You don't, um, you know, bend your rebar when you pour your concrete. And so there's a sense here where where um, Dave Zoll and and You know, you get this whole list of just heavy hitter theologians like St. Augustine and and Martin Luther. And um, you get the scriptural um, testimony here to say that people really are self-centered. They're concerned primarily about their own wants and needs at the expense of others. And you see this happening um, in the reading because they're going to say things, right, across these three chapters. Like, I wish if we were dead, we weren't going to die in the wilderness, but that God had just killed us back in Egypt so we could die of something other than thirst, right? That's what the people are saying in our reading. They're like, oh, whoa. Like, you you would rather be a slave and comfortable than bear the responsibility of being free, right? That's what the people of Israel are saying. They'd rather be a slave and comfortable, then bear the freedom, the responsibility of trusting in God that comes with being freed from slavery, and people, whether it's because they're, you know, limited or double-minded and self-centered, they're like, yeah, that's ex- exactly what we're saying, and they say it to, to Moses, but then, as we know, uh, by saying it to Moses, they're really saying it to God. Um, that I don't want to take upon myself the burden of my own freedom and responsibility if it means that my creature comforts are um, in danger. It's a very self-centered way of putting our own wants and needs uh, above other people. And so the Bible, uh, again, points to these three things. These are the three themes that David Zal pulls out of the Bible and pulls out of our own culture in his book, right? Exodus 15, 16, and 17, we see... The people of Israel expressing this low, or demonstrating for us, as it were, this low anthropology. All right, they have this struggle um, to follow God in freedom that they didn't have when they were following the Pharaoh in slavery. And they are really, really struggling. They're double-minded, they're limited, um, they're weak, they're frail, and they're really struggling to navigate this life after their freedom. Um, maybe we would do well to recognize that they're not so different from us. Maybe we would do well to recognize that we, too, have our own struggles taking on the responsibilities of freedom under God's, and trusting God, as opposed to returning to the slavery of the ways of this world. Um, again, it's not me with the Oreo illustration, but we've all had the Oreo illustration in our lives. I'm lying, it was me, I confess it. Um, But there's a sense in which as we go through this section of scripture, we're going to see Israel as a a frail, um, Bible used language like stiff-necked, stubborn people, and God's going to work with them as much as he can, and Israel's going to resist as much as they can, because it's really just a struggle uh, to make it um, and to bear on this responsibility of freedom, and human beings struggle with that. They really do. Um, but thankfully, there's a rock. And I'll conclo- close with this thought. Thankfully, there's a rock. Um, right? And, and the rock is what brought forth the water um, to keep Israel from um, dying of thirst. And um, you may not know this, but this particular rock um, became for the early Christians a sign of um, Jesus' mercy and grace in the Old Testament. Early Christians are like, oh, wait a minute. The thing was struck and the liquid came from it and it gave life to the people. I know something that was also struck and also pierced and, and, and liquid flowed from it and gave life to the people. And that is Jesus himself. Um, and um, in the New Testament, St. Paul is going to write about this in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. He's going to look back at this section of Israel's life. Um, this section where they're struggling to trust God, they're struggling to be frail, uh, in their frailty. And St. Paul is going to say uh, to the church in Corinth, hey, those, that, remember that era from the Old Testament? Uh, remember that era in Israel's life? Um, we're kind of like that now, because we have this new freedom in Jesus, we have this new freedom, we're stepping out, we're part of this new exodus, and our, our, we may not be in a desert, but we're in the Roman world, and it's really hard. And Paul is going to say, listen, listen, they had struggles with this too, but let's try to transcend their struggles. Let's learn from their mistakes. Let's embrace our low anthropology and recognize that we need, first and foremost, the mercy of God. In fact, here's the exact phrasing, right? This is Paul, this is Paul in the Bible, in 1 Corinthians 10, commenting on this passage from Exodus 17. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, right? That's the exodus. Under the cloud, that's the the great final plague, right? The, The Holy Spirit coming in the plague of the firstborn. All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food. That's Bible speak for manna. And all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock. So Paul is going back to this rock and saying, this is very important because they all drank from this rock. Um, But he doesn't just end there. He says, they all drank from this rock. The rock, he says, was Christ. The rock, says Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul, was Christ. So, fifteen hundred years later, after this event, Saint Paul is going to look back at it and says, "Moses struck the rock; water and blood poured out from his side, right? Uh, And water poured out for the life of Israel. Jesus was struck; blood and water poured from his side, and that blood and water became the lifeblood and an avenue of mercy for the church, just like um, this water flowed from the rock back in Exodus 17." Um, and that's the solution for those who recognize low anthropology in their life. For all of us who recognize the, the limited, double-minded, self-centered tendencies of humanity, we can talk about that and be honest with it because there is a rock. There is mercy and grace from heaven. And it's okay um, to recognize our own frailty. Because in our reading today, God provides the rock. He provides the water. He, it's an act of mercy to a people who really don't deserve it. And yet, um, in the same way that he provides that rock to them, uh, he provides uh, Jesus Christ to us, Um, a a token of mercy pouring from that which was struck so that we might have life. Um, I close today with someone else who really understood what this meant, and um, his name is Augustus Toplady. Anybody know Augustus Toplady? Probably not. Um, He was an English-Anglican clergyman from the 1700s, and he was known for two things, really. Uh, His staunch opposition to the ministry of John Wesley. He didn't like John Wesley. It was kind of his his deal. Um, I think John Wesley was fine in many regards, but this guy didn't. He didn't like John Wesley, and he was one of the first theologians to talk about a theology of animal cruelty. (laughs) So you can go back, and he was like, no, you shouldn't beat your animals, because... He thought animals would rise from the dead. So, if you ever want to do a theological uh, exploration of the movie All Dogs Go to Heaven, you know, Augustus Toplady is your theologian. Anyway, I digress. But really, what he's best known for is not those theological bits. He's remembered today for a hymn he wrote when he was um, a deacon uh, studying to be a priest in the church, in which he studied passages that talked about the rock as Christ. And he ended up penning um, the following lyrics for the hymn. Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save me from its guilt and power. So the old hymn, Rock of Ages, pulls this imagery, right? The, the water and the blood pouring from the rock that was cleft, split in twain. Again, this language of being struck and destroyed. Um, uh, uh, Augustus Toplady goes back and says yeah, that's Jesus and that's for me Rock of Ages, cleft for me what a prayer what a beautiful prayer what a gift that we have this song and I'm sad to say that I discovered this song after I had already sent Pastor uh, Tim our our music list this week so we're not going to sing it Tim, bonus points for me if you throw it in as a postlude I don't know if you can do it but if anyone can, I think you can but in a world, friends of messed up people, when you look at rock of, uh, this, uh, this beautiful sentiment that we need to be saved um, in our own limitation by a gracious God, it's all here in our reading from Exodus 17. That the solution to a life um, lived under the providence of heaven is not our own willpower, it's not pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps, it's actually lowering our anthropology and recognizing that we need mercy from heaven. And so I commend to you two things this morning, friends. Um, First, take the lead of this passage and lower your anthropology. All human beings in this room, we uh, we included, are less resilient, less wise, and a lot more fragile than we imagine ourselves to be. So lower your anthropology. And the second thing I want to tell you this morning is no matter how resilient or not resilient or wise or unwise or fragile or strong we may be, um, it doesn't matter because God loves us anyway. And has given us the rock of ages, cleft for us, that we might receive his mercy and grace and live fully to the end. In Jesus' name. Amen. On Friday. On Sunday. Near Pennsylvania.